Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side, And from Atlanta, Georgia, I am Kurt Dupuis. So we've got a bit of a twofer for you today. We are going to first have a conversation kind of unpacking a presentation that Side did nationwide about team structure. And it has to do with frameworks and a few processes. So you know he's really excited about All that. All the good stuff. All the <laughs> uh, good stuff. And then we will also peek into a conversation we had with Tim Kressel. He's over at Broadridge. Fascinating discussion about kind of the trends in the industry. Some will likely surprise you. And I'll I'll give my three summary points with that conversation with Tim before we jump into talking about some team structure stuff. But the first is that in the asset management world, particularly, there is a great dichotomy. There's two groups that he talked about that are kind of on, on the edges, not the fat part of the, the bell curve, but they are the expanding incumbents. And basically anybody that advertises on TV probably fits into that category. They're the household names. But then he talked about this other group called the innovative challengers. So that was the first point is very much a bifurcation in who's seeing flows in the asset management world, the expanding incumbents and the innovative challengers. Secondly, we talked about trends in different asset classes. So we, we hit it all at it. Like, where the, where's mutual fund business going? Where's the ETF business going? Where's the active ETF business going? Where's ESG? How about alternatives? Great data on all those great, I'll call it anecdata, because he told you know a few stories about how people are using each of those categories. For sure, we'll surprise you some of those outcomes there. And then lastly, he my big takeaway was talking about branding as a superpower. Again, I think this is something that Touchstone does particularly well because if you talk to any wholesaler in the field, we largely have the same story because it's what we believe in, or at least I do. So there, there is, there's a brand there. There's, um, there's evidence of that too in some surveys we've seen about Touchstone and their engagements with some of our, our wholesalers. So I think we're doing a, a, a fair to, to better than, maybe slightly better than average job uh, with branding. But he talked about whether you're kind of in the captive space um, at a wire or completely independent, how important branding is to your business. And it's only becoming more so. Yeah. I think a couple points responding to that, uh, those three points that you just mentioned is one, you know, you could look at the overall flows of, or, or, or assets in the asset management business and say, okay, well, the business is growing this, this percent. So then, you know, all the firms in the industry are growing somewhere around that. It is not right, like that right, right there right. is, there's winners and losers. Uh, I was in a meeting today with our, our CEO, Blake Moore, and he got some data and it's amazing. Some firms, uh, it's it's scary actually experiencing outflows that have gone on for you know 18 consecutive quarters and things like that. I mean, there's some real real shakeout in the industry ha- uh, happening right now. And uh, you know, it, those two groups being the exception to uh, to that shakeout. And it's, I agree with Kurt. I think we are, we are in one of those winner groups, knock on wood. And I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, we've had a couple of these guests on to talk a little bit um, about industry trends, because 
I think the basis for us was you read the articles and you know you name the publication, and they're all driven in a lot of ways by marketing from large organizations. Like there, there's a a trend in you know you make it up ESG. I like we've been picking on that a lot, which I I don't want to beat that, but that's a huge trend in the industry. And all these articles are about firms coming out. Well, what's actually happening there? And what we're finding is that under the hood, those headlines don't necessarily represent reality. And we wanted to have a couple of guests on to talk about that. And I think Tim did an outstanding job going through those things. And I agree with you on the branding thing. That was just uh, very, very cool, uh, particularly because, you know, for, in my mind, I, and I agree with you, Kurt, about us doing a, a better job. It's taken, a, taken us a while to get there. Right. But the industry as a whole, are we really good at it? I, I, I mean, it seems like a lot of, if I'm a financial professional and I'm looking at asset management firms, a lot of them look alike, you know, they got some great people, they all have decent product. What's really the major differences here? I mean, there's some that have that have done it branding pretty well, but um, well, we, we could say the same thing about, you know, the, the whole wealth management space, right? Like, totally. you know, we've talked about this what, fat margins breed kind of complacency and and lack of brand awareness that we we 100%. know this. So, we we get caught up in it, but these things are only true until they're not. And that's kind of what we're talking about. I think a lot of what we talk about on here sometimes is maybe future proofing. Maybe it's some things that you're not thinking about today, but if you're in this business another decade or two, these are the things that are, you're going to be thinking about. And these guys that are at these gigantic data gathering companies, like they have better access than any. So between kind of the, the macro folks like Broadbridge, and then you have the micro folks like, like Penny or Lens who are getting their hands dirty with financial professionals every day. Those are the kind of stories we're trying to bring just to help uh, people understand how, how people that are in the nitty gritty are thinking about this. Absolutely. So we'll get to Tim's interview in a second. Um, and let's jump into the, what we wanted to do on team structure. And we're going to call this five points on team structure. And this is a topic that I've talked about, as Kurt alluded to, on a couple of national calls. It seems to be getting some good feedback. But truthfully, this came out organically from the fact that, you know, in our consulting work, we're getting all kinds of questions on team structure, you know, with teams coming together, et cetera. So we want to share five points on team structure for you all. And so why is this important? Just quickly, you know, industry is moving towards teaming. We know that teams are coming together. Uh, a lot of FAs are retiring, even though, you know, the older generation or the senior folks in our industry aren't retiring at the rate that that some have expected. Um, yes. There's still a lot that are retiring or semi-retiring. And how does that look? Uh, and so people are thinking about roles and responsibilities differently. And lastly, we know that industry has a capacity problem from a uh, number of households managed per book, et cetera. This is not a new challenge. So these are the things that are driving team structure coming up. And then secondarily, beyond those natural forces, the world has gotten a lot more complex. If you're sitting there at a firm, they're investing a ton in resources for you all and technology. So, you know, what you have to follow and try to take advantage of if you're sitting in the seat of these firms has gotten more complex. And how do we change and adapt a team uh, that that maximizes those those resources? So with that said, Kurt, you want to jump in? Let's just do five five points on team structure. You good on that? Let's jump. All right. So number one. There's an exercise that we do, and point one is we're going to do a kind of recommendation uh, with you with roles and responsibility mapping. We have this this worksheet that you can go to that kind of just breaks down the team 
and and simply goes through um, roles and responsibilities. And that's good for a couple of reasons. The first is that oftentimes roles aren't as defined as we think they are. We think that our assistant and sales assistant is responsible for X, but do they know that? Do they know what part of the role they do? So just sitting down and going through that exercise and having that dialogue, I think is really good. Uh, but the second part of it is, you know, it's an opportunity to, to, to look at your time as the financial professional and figure out how to maximize your impact and efficiency in the practice. So if we had, uh, Penny Phillips was just on recently, I'll use her as an example. She said, listen, what I suggest to, to financial professionals is to anything that's non-differentiable, anything that you'd spending time on that's not differential, automate it, give it, let the rest of the team do it and spend at least 80% of your time on business development, um, in front of clients, things that you are, you know, that you're able to bring a differentiated thing to something that you are uniquely qualified to focus your attention on. And so that's what we mean by uh, roles and responsibility mapping. Yeah. And we use an analogy to describe this, which we didn't come up with, but I, I think it's very helpful. And when you think of your experience at the, the dentist and, and mine has been a, a very good one, um, you know, outside for that year plus of COVID of not going to the dentist. Um, it's, it's, you know, you're greeted by someone at the door. They ask you if you can get a coffee or water, although I don't know why you would drink coffee right before going to the dentist. Uh, <laughs> you have the, the, you know, the technician spends most of their time with you, just kind of cleaning, going through. And then the dentist comes at the very end, make sure everything's up to snuff, make sure they're they're covering their um, malpractice insurance by, by by looking around, poking around, and then, and then they're out. What I don't want to say with that analogy is, oh, well, financial advisors should spend five minutes with their clients and let everybody else do everything else. No, the the time best spent, it's, it's that 80% rule. Like it's 80% of your time should be with clients and prospects. If, if it's not, your skills are likely better spent doing that. And the bigger a team gets, we should be talking about, we could be, we should be thinking in multiplication, not addition. You know, if you take a 40-hour CA or sales assistant and a 40-hour-a-week financial professional, that shouldn't equal 80, that it should equal 100 or 120 because you can simply get more done, provide higher level of service with more folks. That's scale. That's the definition of scale. And so that, that our, I mean, there's, there's a couple of kind of easy barometers there, 80% of your time with clients and prospects or anything that's $20 an hour work, that should be outsourced to someone else or automated. Um that's just becoming more and more crucial as as financial professionals are stretched so many different ways and asked to provide a lot more services than than they historically have been. That's going to become more and more paramount. Yeah, dig in. You know, the dentist comes in when it's time to do you know the drilling work and the uh, not to beat this analogy to death, but the advanced planning topics, the the things that pop up, that goes right to you. Again, we're not saying spend less of your time, but you know, the, the run of the mill stuff, the blocking and tackling, the more you can outsource, um, the better. Yeah. Well, and the second big point, um, and several of these are just around the idea of human capital. And, and again, I'm sympathetic to the person that got in this business 30 years ago, not wanting to manage a big team, but this is the reality that we live in. That's where um, we are. The, it, uh, it's, it's creating a career path that is going to be critical for employee retention. So, you know, who you were looking for a, a decade ago is probably not the person you're looking for now. So we use the, the example of thinking about sales assistant or, or CAs, but folks that want some sort of path, you know, I, and 
I always think about this like the, the German education system has two paths. So you either figure out in high school whether you're going the college path or like the technical route path. Right. And the, the, the same is appropriate for support staff. I mean, if, if you want the same role for 10, 20, 30 years, great. That, that's awesome. But fewer and fewer people want that. So creating some sort of path for people to get licensed, to develop skills, spend more time in client-facing roles if they want it. Um, and there's all there's also, once the path is built, there's all these drop-offs, right? Like maybe someone wants, doesn't want to be a full-fledged financial professional, but they do want to get licensed. They want, you know, having that on-ramp available for people. Uh, well, I should say this. The people that are struggling with retention and finding talent are the people that don't have these things worked out. So if, if you like hiring people um, regularly, then, <laughs> then don't, don't heed the, the advice, but... Um, the people that we see most engaged and most happy in the roles that they're in kind of have this stuff figured out. Yeah. And let's go through an example of the sales assistants if we can. I mean, um, again, stealing from one of our recent guests, uh, Penny was talking about, you know, three paths for sales assistants, one being, you know, relationship management in-house FA. So you don't necessarily have to be going out and pounding the pavement, but we need relationship managers. We do in some of these biggest, big teams and called in-house FAs. Second be, could be COO. Is that person, you know, we've all come across them that have this chief operating officer mentality and do so much for the team. Does that become a track? And lastly, while, you know, Penny described it as being a little bit more rare, you know, going into production. But but the, the point that Kurt made is, is right, which is that we want to hire people. We want to keep them in place by giving them career trajectory. The days of just saying this is your role, we'll give you a little bit of bump in pay and in, in pay for the ne- you know over the next fifteen years. Like those days are mostly done. Can you find that? Are there some diamonds in the rough that'll fit that role? Yes, but I think it's more the exception. Yeah, and business development is that it's just that like some people have it, some people don't, and right. you know pretty early on. Whether they had the, but then I think you also need to make the case that if you want somebody to bring in business, you got to give them a really long time horizon too. Um, measurable KPIs, like yeah, I think you can back into that pretty easily. But you you can't make gatherers hunters, and and vice versa. You can't make hunters gatherers. Yeah, I think, and the one other thing I'd say about this is. How are most teams growing? Not most, but a lot is by client experience referrals. And they sure they sure can do that by raising the game of the client experience while they're relationship managers, which, you know, will likely result in more growth than uh than just starting to dial a call list. Right. All of that leads to scale. Um so the next point is hiring. Um, and we like to think of this as a hiring the best player available. So Another analogy we like to talk about is is the bus. Like, are you hiring for a seat on the bus? Or are you hiring to get a certain type of person on the bus? And more and more, I think we're seeing the latter. When you find quality individuals that can can be plugged into various roles over time within an organization, those people are more sought out after than the person that is going to be in a single role for an extended period of time. Um, so that's, those are the type of people that you should be looking for and hiring. Yeah. The caveat there is if you have some flexibility though, right? If you have no flexibility with what we just talked about with career pathing or helping people think through different ways that they can move in the organization, then hire the person who's the best fit in the job. But if you have any kind of flexibility or, you know, 
ability to think about jobs creatively. Best player available, right? I always go back to the, what is it, the football analogy in the NFL draft. You can fire it. You know, you need a running back. You take the running back in the first round, or you could just take the best player available, um, which is usually historically proven to be to be correct. But again, I think it's important to have that flexibility. And just one other point we'd make while we're on, you know, number our our, our thought number three on hiring. Um, I brought her. I'm bringing her up a lot in this conversation. So Penny, I'll have to give you royalties or something. But she said something else that really hit home with me. We asked her about um, hiring, and you know, people have such trouble hiring things like sales assistants. And she said, "You remember what she said, Kurt? She was like, I don't ever worry about hiring." Because every person that I meet, I'm building a bench of people that I potentially would hire. So you meet somebody really good. And this is not CSAs, by the way. This is this is any role. Every person you meet, is that somebody that potentially could be a call I make when I have an open position down the road and building that bench? That seems obvious, but I never really thought about it that way. I, you know, I always thought about it as when you have a role, let's start looking. But she's like, no, I'm almost like always thinking about people I'm going to hire. With this, it reminds me of two things. One is, if you remember back to Colby modes, this is an initiating quick start type of mentality, right? The ability to act um, in the face of of risk or uncertainty. And so it's like, I don't have this role today, but man, like meeting people. And the second thing it reminds me of is just how entrepreneurial minded this is. And I yeah. think that's a big switch that we're talking about. That's that's a big ask that a lot of firms are having of financial professionals today is just to think more entrepreneurially. And that's one of those reasons. I, and it was funny how we had that conversation and I just in interacting with folks like from kids schools and everything recently, I, f- I found like there's three people that I've met in the last <laughs> month that I'd be like, if yeah. I needed a CA, like I would right? absolutely hire this person because of, I have no idea what their background is, but they just, they, they fit the spirit of, of what this embodies. Stay in touch, touch base, drip, whatever that drip looks like. If it's an email, Hey, just staying in touch. You got a bench. You got people that you know you're staying in touch with. So I think that's. We also just call this networking. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty basic yeah. human skills. I just, I guess, I needed to turn that on in my brain because that I never really thought about it that way, and that that was really um, a good point. Okay, so let's get into point number four, which is multiple sales assistants on a team. So a couple of suggestions here. Um, you can have generalists. So. You basically have a pool of sales assistants, and as work comes, you can kind of assign. That is less optimal, we have found, um, than actually dividing things up and creating specialties. So for example, to actually assign the sales assistant to a group of accounts, so you're dealing with accounts one through 75, sales assistant B is is, is uh, focused on uh, 76 through 150, whatever it is. That we found to be better, more optimal, better experience to clients than the generalist approach, like everyone fills in regardless of it. Now, that doesn't mean there's there's backups. Uh, there's obvious things, but it's talking about primary responsibility. So uh, you have this scenario, because I just ran across one of these, three different financial professionals merging uh, to go independent, and they have three different CAs. You could just take the big basket and distribute by last names of clients. Oh, you could. 
Yeah, so it depends is, on how, if the how much family calls in, in, you've got the first half of the, and if the sides call in, you've got the second half, if, you know, if you're yeah. by two or three or whatever. But yeah, back to scale, right? Like if, if it's easier for people, especially if they're that quasi relationship management role to know who's on the other end of the phone, com- immediately establish rapport, you kind of have a background of what the problem is, like these micro moments that we're, we're kind of solving for, that's that scale. Um, and yeah, I've, I've seen the same thing. It makes a lot more sense to divvy up by relationship rather than by which practice they used to work in. Yeah. And one final point on this is giving a specialty beyond just the client, which is that, yeah. you know, a specialty around, Hey, this is the sales assistant that covers insurance cases. This is the sales assistant that focuses on, you know, 401k or special planting topics. The point is specialization, focus, dedication. I think, I think we've sort of made our point there. So the last point I want to make actually comes from a question that I got on a recent call that had to do with, you know, teams coming together. And so the question is, what should you consider when evaluating whether to merge two practices or more than two practices into a larger team? And I'll just kind of make two points on this. The first is scalability. Obviously, we've used that a couple of times in this episode. Is the sum going to be greater than the individual parts? Does one-on-one make three, right? Kurt just talked about that before. So, you know, if you have a team that comes together, it's pretty easy to come together and just have a higher growth grid. And each financial professional or team operates in their own capacity. They talk some, they might share some, you know, uh, team infrastructure resources. It is fine. Like if that's, if that's what the game you're playing. Totally. Awesome. I'm all about people maximizing their own economic benefit. That's just not what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. We're it's just like talking about optimal. more optimal. Yeah. Yes. From, from yeah, a exactly structure right. approach, from a personnel approach. Yeah. So, so what does that look like? Again, we talked about breaking up of, 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 uh, of client accounts, but also, you know, how do you work together? Does both financial professionals focus on the same things? Are they both picking investments? Are they both involved in investment process versus breaking that up? I mean, there's all kinds of different synergies that you can do when you merge teams together. And I think that's what I'd be thinking about. That's where you could really unlock some real value. So um, point made. And then, and then the second one is more, I don't want to say esoteric, but do you have the same vision for where this is headed? You know, I don't know, Kurt, if you've run into this, but I have, let's just keep it simple. You've got two financial professionals, one wants to grow like crazy and wants to, you know, keep the practice moving. And the other one doesn't really, the other one wants to, has more of a lifestyle practice, comfortable where they are, et cetera. I mean, that could work, but I've seen things like that cause a lot of friction when teams come together. It's so rare that you just know when you find something that actually works, which is both, let's call it both parties or all parties on board with the same vision, but are also okay with ev- with everyone's contribution to that vision. Yeah. Uh, that's that's what we're searching for. It's it's almost like a purple unicorn, though. It's very difficult to find because you you know, fifty percent of marriages end in divorce, and I bet that number is way higher with partnerships and JPNs with financial professionals. I think it requires just you know being really honest. I think sometimes people are are. I don't want to say deluding themselves, but do you come across people that just like, oh, I want to grow this business? I do. You know, we're focused on growth. And then you get like one question down. It's like, are you really, you know, do you have any kind of 
um, strategy around this, thought process around this, whatever. Of course, everyone wants to grow. I shouldn't say of course, because there's plenty of people that don't need to grow. But you know, being honest about that, and that requires mm-hmm. some in-depth conversations, some real, you know, heart-to-heart and honesty. And um, so, just spend more, a lot of, spend a lot of time there, like talking about the vision for this thing when it comes together, and who's doing what, and how this thing looks, and so. Um, that was our five points on team structure. We could do a lot more, but we wanted to keep it to five. Uh, if you want to have any follow-up questions on things you're thinking through with your team structure, uh, send it to us at the whole truth at touchdownfunds.com. You know, to me, if I had to sum it up, there's really kind of um, you know, two issues that we tend to really focus on with with things about team structure. You know, it's really a mismatch between capacity and goals. So we spent a lot of time in these five points talking about, you know, how do we create capacity? How do we create scale? And then the second one is duplication of efforts and lack of operational efficiency. So again, similar type type things. So so when we're building out our content around team structure, these are the things that we're that we're trying to address. So uh, with that, let's get to the second part of our episode, segment two, with our episode of Tim Kressel with Broadridge. This is the whole truth. Stick with us. All right. Well, please welcome Tim Kressel from Broadridge. Tim, thank you so much for uh, spending a little bit of time with us. We appreciate it. Steve, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time and looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So let's maybe start with an overview of Broadridge, who you guys are, what you focus on. Perfect. Well, as you probably know, Broadridge is a fairly large organization. Uh, Broadridge is one of the global leading fintech firms in the space providing technology, communications, data, and intelligence across the marketplace. Now, I specifically work within the data and analytics group within Broadridge that really serves our asset management clients more so than anybody else. And within the business that I focus on, we really focus on enabling asset managers to make more data-driven decisions. Um, through a variety of different means, whether that's the unique proprietary data that we have here at Broadridge, whether it is the deep levels of experience that we have across the organization, or whether it's through analytics work that we can do with that combination of unique skill and data. Good deal. That sounds good. And where does this, you know, you talk about data and analytics. What's the source of your particular data? So we get data from a variety of different sources. Here in the US, um, we get data through our unique position within the industry as a leading provider of investor communications that gives us access to a wealth of fairly unique and proprietary information that we can use in our data and analytics packages. On top of that, we do get data through consortiums as well to supplement the information that we have, and that really helps Uh, both for markets that we don't have that investor communications information, um, whether institutional markets, retirement markets here in the U.S., certainly global marketplaces as well. And then we're constantly surveying the marketplace to try to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on at the professional buyer level, at the advisor level, as well as at the end investor level as well, all to be able to enrich all of that really detailed quantitative information that we have. Got it. So you mentioned asset managers. Are those your primary clients and who else do you guys serve that that that's worth mentioning? Yeah. So I'm within my group almost exclusively serving our asset management clients. We as a broader organization serve all kinds of different firms, but I get the pleasure of working with asset managers. How about that? Aren't we wonderful? 
You really are the best. It's great. Yeah. I love my job. You Lucky you. <laughs> and so what's some of the things that differentiate uh, you guys from other uh, research-based organizations? Yeah. So probably just to quickly touch on some of the things that I, I'd already mentioned, you know, the first being our wealth of proprietary data. Um, we're in a fairly privileged position within the industry that gives us access to a lot of information that others don't have. And it gives us some really unique insights into what's going on in the marketplace. We like to think that we've surrounded that data with a lot of the top industry talent and um, industry practitioners on these fronts that allow us to really unlock the potential of that data and more importantly, allow our clients to get the most out of it. Because one of the challenges that you know we always see in the industry, and I'm not sure if you guys have experienced it all, is um, having data is one thing, right? We can have all the best data in the world. That the real challenge is, well, how do we unlock that data and actually be happy with the value we're getting out of it and the decisions we're able to make? And that requires um, you know, a lot of additional thinking, infrastructure, what have you around it. And that's what we're trying to build here. Interesting. And, and so, and kind of the elephant in the room with our conversations every day, um, whether we're talking to home office folks, managers in the field, or financial professionals growth, like every, every FA is trying to grow their practice, but I'd be curious, like, what does the data say about the asset management world and what does, what does growth look like there? Yeah, we've seen really unprecedented growth within the asset management space over the past decade or so, right? I mean, I look at global assets under management over the past 10 years or so from about 2011 to 2021, we've experienced compound annualized growth rates averaging out at about 11% a year. Um, That's pretty unbelievable. We've managed to grow from about $36 trillion to about $97 trillion in assets under management in just that 10-year time period through both significant capital appreciation as well as organic growth in that time period across a myriad of different markets. Now, we've pulled back a little bit over the past year, but um, it's been a pretty good decade for asset management from a growth perspective. So, you know, you talk about the growth from an overall perspective, but there really are, you know, some winners, some losers, some some folks in between. When I heard you guys give a presentation, there was a couple of groups that you kind of pulled out of that data that I would love for you to comment on. The first is the expanding incumbents. I think we know who they are, but I'd love to hear your comments there. And then the innovative challengers, which I'm kind of pointing at ourselves. You can't see this. It's a podcast, but I think that's us. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, you know, that that's the challenge with industry numbers, right? Just like averages, yeah. they hide a lot of interesting <laughs> stories within them. And so when we look at the data, you know, to your point, we like to kind of start to group firms into different categories, depending on the characteristics that they have. It's kind of segmenting the market, if you will. And so um, you know, at the firms that you oftentimes hear a lot about are these expanding incumbents. So it's really the largest players in the industry who have continued to take on more market share as time has gone on, right? This is kind of the, the rich get richer, if you will, right? This group of about 22 firms makes up roughly half of industry assets. Globally, they've experienced significant growth off the back of their fairly extensive platforms. The second group that you'd mentioned is this innovative challengers group. This is a group that you know doesn't necessarily crack that top echelon of expanding incumbents, 
but have seen outsized industry growth rates over the past few years, right? And so this group of what we would say is probably about 50 to 55 firms have experienced compound annualized growth over the past five years of about 17% year over year, right? So that obviously outpaces the 11% that I had mentioned before over the last 10-year time period. And that's not surprising because that's how we define that group, right? right? They know what they're about and they do that very, very well. Um, And we've certainly seen some change in that group over the past few years, but we find this to be a really interesting group to look to when we start looking at the tail, the long tail of the industry, which is kind of, you know, all other managers that are um, certainly still seeing growth because we've seen significant capital appreciation over the past five to 10 years, but aren't experiencing the same level of organic growth as some of these other firms. We're going to get into that branding and that differentiation in a minute because that's really important. But, you know, you're a guy, you seem like you know the numbers well, you're an analytical guy. Why Why did Boston lose in the first round? Why did the Bruins? We were talking to Tim prior to this. We're all hockey fans here. I, as if I have anything to say, my devil's just yeah, got say. roasted by the by Carolina. Hey, listen, but but the Boston Bruins were were a historical team in the regular season. What happened, Tim? What happened? I mean, I don't think there's any amount of analytics that will help me answer that question, okay. especially not that's accessible to me. As the average Bruins fan, I think the only thing that I can say is uh, regular season success doesn't always translate to playoff success, unfortunately. It um, rarely does, I believe. We've seen that time and time again. Yes. <laughs> uh, sorry, I had, to, I had to sneak that question in there. So back to the task at hand. One of the things that you guys talk about you know, is personalization, and you hear that across a lot of different industries. Uh, but you actually label it disruptive to our industry. What what do you mean by that? Investors are demanding a more personalized experience from the wealth managers that they're working with because, frankly, they get it in every other aspect of their lives. Why wouldn't they expect that on the advice side? Advisors, for the same reason, their clients are demanding it. They're demanding it from the firms that they work with, whether the wealth managers that they're employed by, whether the platforms they use, or whether the you know asset managers that they work with as well. And then it's a matter of implementation. Is it managed accounts? Is it direct indexing? Is it some combination of you know active ETFs or passive building blocks? And so I think that's really where the conversation generally centers around and where we see it being most disruptive is on the product wrapper side and on the product IP side as well, right? That's going to take a lot of collaboration between the asset management and the wealth management community and the advisors who are ultimately delivering those solutions to investors. Got it. Got it. Um, Have you heard us talk about kind of what we, the way we describe ourselves as being different um, on the practice consulting side. I don't know how deep we, we've we shared about our, our, our value proposition, but I guess the question that I have for you is, you know, a lot of discussion about product. We What we try to do as Touchstone is really be, and, and, and a lot of firms say this, but we try to live it like real business consultants. So, so being able to sit across from a financial professional and very succinctly help them increase the value of their business, and we can achieve that in a variety of different ways. Does that strike you as as something that you're talking about, or is it much is it different than that? You know, I, I, I'm going to give the cop out answer here, which is I think it's both. Uh, we just mentioned yeah. how crowded the marketplace is right now, right? 
there's a lot of managers who are fairly consultative in their selling process, who have a deep bag of product as well, or unique or specialized products. And so I think it's a matter of how do we both be consultative and have unique investment IP that we can deliver in the ways that our clients want that investment IP delivered. Those are going to be the firms that we're going to see, you know, really differentiate themselves. Not to say there's not a role for, you know, consultative selling. That's the future of the industry. But I do think it's oftentimes um, more challenging than just that in a lot of instances. Than just that. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of things that asset managers need to do to win. There's four things specifically. Uh, product innovation, which we touched on a little bit, but maybe we can we could talk about that more. Uh, more flexible delivery, stronger distribution, and then the thing we mentioned before, which is better branding. Maybe let's take that one at a time and comment on each of those. What do you mean by f- more flexible delivery? I just want that in specifically. Yeah, so it, it's oftentimes you see the conversation about delivery and investment IP being conflated to some degree, where people think, okay, you know, I need to have you know, active ETFs, right? Or I need to have a um, wrapper agnostic distribution approach where we deliver through everything. And what we actually see as being, you know, best practice in this area is thinking about them as separate conversations where we start with the investment IP conversation. It's about how are we uniquely suited to be able to provide this specific piece of investment IP to the marketplace. From there, determining who is the right target market for that investment IP. It's likely not for everybody, right? So an acknowledgement of that fact and determining who it's for from an investor and advisor perspective, and only then having the delivery conversation around given who our target market is, given what our investment IP is, What's the right wrapper to put this in? Is it an ETF? Is it a managed account? Is it you know a traditional open end open end fund, right? Which we certainly see waning, but we see pockets of continued success there. And so that that's kind of what we think about when we think about flexible delivery vehicles. The other part of it is how do we think about delivering in a customized way to different uh, different managers or different platforms depending on what their needs are. So kind of unique distribution arrangements with wealth managers or kind of privileged distribution arrangements in certain cases. Got it. Um, I'm interested in the latter two a lot, actually. So stronger distribution and better branding. What does it mean by stronger distribution? Is this is this that? We're having more distribution people in the field that uh, those that we have are, quote unquote, stronger. Like, what are you getting at with the strong distribution comment? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what that looks like probably varies a little bit firm to firm. But I do think that it's about not only having the right people to be able to serve the needs of clients, right? So making sure that you have the skills to be able to distribute and create relationships in the ways that advisors want, but also having them structured in the most appropriate way such that you can deliver on that service model and can deliver effectively and efficiently. Because I think one thing that you know isn't going away anytime soon is the relationship-driven aspect of our business, yeah. right? Advisors tell us that the number one resource they get from asset managers they work with is field wholesalers. Hmm. Um, That's been true for a long, long time. It was still true as of five months ago when we did this research. I'm sure it's still going to be true five years ago when we ask these same questions as well. And so it's a matter of how do I keep that personal relationship-driven aspect, but how do I supercharge it using all these things that we have at our disposal now? 
You know what, Tim? We agree with you on that. Wholesalers are Always good, good to hear Wholesalers it. <laughs> are good. Don't think that's changing. You know what's been interesting? In branding, like why is this becoming bigger and what type of branding? I, 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 I don't think you mean like slapping your name on a billboard, but I could be wrong. You, you tell me. No, you're, you're exactly right. So um, why is it becoming more important? It's becoming more important because, frankly, the marketplace is extremely crowded, as we mentioned before. And so differentiation is more important than it's ever been because of that. Now, ultimately, you know, it's not about advertising, right? It's not about, well, how do we get name recognition? Although, you know, that's certainly part of it for some firms. When we're talking about better branding, it is about identifying what your value proposition is to the target market you're selling through. And so in this case, it could just be answering the question of why should a financial advisor do business with your firm, right? And that's something that we ask all the time in the course of our work. I'd mentioned before that you know I'm lucky enough to get to work with asset managers every day on a myriad of different distribution-related issues, challenges, opportunities. And one of the things that we oftentimes ask firms when we first come in and start doing some discovery work about their organization is we ask a waterfront of people across the organization, well, what is your value proposition? Or put another way, why should a financial advisor do business with you? I can't tell you the number of times that we've gone in and asked that question. We've interviewed 40 people within the same organization, and we've gotten 37 different answers yeah. to that individual Not surprising. question, right? Yeah. And, and in many cases, those answers that we do get are um, the same as we got from the firm down the street and the firm across the country. And, you know, they're not necessarily unique. And so I think it's about A, consistency of value proposition and B, uniqueness of value proposition as well. And I think, you know, those are the two things that are more critical than they've ever been. And then it's just a matter of how do we execute on that effectively. I mean, lots of financial professionals out there, exactly as you described, and sometimes they have a difficult time describing like why you should do business with me. So yeah, yeah it's really interesting. And I mean, that that's another area we've seen significant change, which just for what it's worth is, is interesting is, you know, when we survey financial advisors, one of the things we've heard pretty consistently over the past few years, but it's been going on longer than that, is financial advisors are shifting their value proposition more towards holistic financial planning, yeah. right? You know, just doing pure wealth management isn't enough, especially as we see wealth transfer starting and kind of more diverse needs of a more diverse client base, you know, shifting their value proposition to holistic financial planning. But outside of holistic financial planning, who are we focusing on? What are we focusing on within that, right? That, that's exactly. a broad value proposition exactly. overall, to your point. It's a very similar challenge on the asset management side. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, the the financial professionals that I'm seeing that are differentiating really well, it's within the realm of financial planning and their ability to specify there and say, well, yeah, we do this, but here's what it's mean. Here's specifically my process and here's what that means to you. Let's transition to a couple of other topics. I want to talk about alts, which is, you know, seem to be a huge topic in the industry you hear the firms saying we want to do more alts, firms being the broker dealers, et cetera, those providers. You hear our side of the industry saying we want to do more alts. You know, what's actually happening there? Is there the growth? What are you seeing in the alts space? We're seeing the same thing. So people are saying they want to do more. People are doing more. So we're actually seeing, you know, additional assets, you know, quicker raises, what have you on that side. 
Just over the past you know, 18 months or so, when I look at survey data, to your point on people are saying they're doing more alts, if I were to go back to Q1 2021, about 50% of the advisors that we surveyed said that they were using alternative investments, right? Fast forward to Q3 of 2022, that number was up to 67% in just a relatively short time period. Now, I think part of that is driven by the market volatility that we saw, right? Advisors were telling us, I'm trying to get more diversification. I'm trying to get non-correlation with traditional equity markets. And so I think that's driven part of it. And frankly, alternatives is a pretty broad term as well. Most of that use of alternatives is in liquid alternatives, right? It's you know real oh, estate it strategies. Really? Okay. Most of it along the broader base of advisors, right? Mm-hmm. Or among the advisors that are saying they are using them most are using kind of more liquid real estate strategies. If you look at the money that is going into them, that's where things differ a little bit because you start looking at the illiquid side. Those are much, much higher asset values, much wealthier clients. So it might be a smaller percentage of the overall client base, but it represents a huge and growing market segment at this point as well. And one that's pretty rapidly changing from a product development perspective, from a demand perspective, even just from an implementation perspective as well. Same question, ESG. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, On the ESG side, this is always an interesting topic, is... Um, ESG, uh, we have seen continued growth on the ESG side of the business. So what do I mean by that? Well, we see um, a larger percentage of advisors that are offering ESG strategies to their clients. We see a larger percentage of clients in ESG, and we see a larger percentage of assets in ESG across the board. Okay, So all metrics that tell us that you know, this continues to grow and change. Now, one thing that we have not seen among the advisor community is increasing sentiment around ESG. Mm. Advisors are more bearish on ESG now than they were two years ago, which I think is interesting, right? And that's probably not surprising, especially in the seats that we sit in, right? Like we talk to financial professionals, we talk to, I talk to asset managers, professional buyers. There's a lot of headlines, even when you just look at the trades around ESG. Not a lot of them have been positive over the past 12 months or so. Now, when you get outside of that bubble for a minute and you talk to investors, ask the same question to investors about sentiment around ESG versus two years ago. Investors have a more positive sentiment around ESG Hmm. now relative to what they did two years ago, right? And so investors are still saying, this is critically important to me. Right. I want to invest, um, you know, in my values to some degree. And we ask about, well, what do you actually care about? It's not just about the E in ESG either. Right. Social and governance issues have actually taken increased importance over time as well. Interesting. So the same presentation we've referenced a few times, you, you use the phrase peak mutual fund has arrived. What in the world does that mean? Uh, so uh, this is probably um something that will surprise absolutely nobody when I say uh, mutual funds are uh, no longer making up the vast majority of new flows that we see in the industry as we've seen for so many years, right? And so when I say peak mutual fund has arrived, that's basically just a way to be able to say, when we look at new flows, 
they're frankly more fractured than we've ever seen before across different product structures. They're going into passive ETFs. They're going into active ETFs. They're going into managed accounts. They're going into alternatives, whether semi-liquid, liquid, or illiquid. Um, open-end mutual funds, that's not to say they're hemorrhaging money, right? right? In fact, if I were to look at retail open-end flows, right, just over the past 24 months or so, we're down over a 24-month period. But if I were to go back a year ago, we were actually up significantly into open-end funds. And so there's certainly still a place for open-end funds in the landscape of the future, but it's in flux and they're no longer winning all of the net new flows that are coming into the industry. The broker-dealer channel, probably a little more tepid, right, Um, in terms of the movement away. Same trend, just at a different pace, if you will. Where are we with active ETFs? Certainly, we know passive has taken a a large share. Um, Active is a direction we're going in, but truthfully, it seems like it's kind of slow to really gain a lot of ground, particularly at the larger wirehouses who have yet to kind of really figure out how this is going to work. But what's your perspective? Um, I think you nailed it when you said it's slow, right? We do see significant flows going into active ETFs, right? When you look at just the headline numbers, we see growth there, right? Really sizable growth within active ETFs. But as we mentioned earlier, those headline numbers oftentimes hide a lot of nuance that's really important. And active ETFs is one of those, right? You look at active ETFs, A, it's very top heavy. A handful of providers control much of the market share. B, um, conversions make up a lot of that growth. Where there's a handful of big conversions, they can drive big growth over the short term. We've certainly seen that. And then finally, um, a lot of it is very concentrated in certain asset classes, especially over the past 12 months, it's been a lot of ultra-short business. So a lot of ultra-short business going into those active ETFs, um, which has driven a lot of those growth numbers. When you look at kind of, and you try and strip out the impact of those, there's still growth, but it's been much, much more tepid. Well, I was going to drill down on on the value of wholesalers a, a little bit. So you you answered the question: Do financial professionals value wholesalers? I, I, what I heard was a resounding yes. Um, but how do you drill that down? Is there are there particular aspects of that engagement that they value more than others? Yeah, good question. Um, so. I would argue there's probably a few different things that come to mind there. Um, First and foremost, and this is probably the most obvious answer I can give, but I'll start here and then hopefully provide something more helpful. It's about access to resources, right? So it's about access to resources within the territory and within the firm. And so oftentimes when we look at, you know, what's the value you're getting from your external partners, it's about, hey, they're bringing new product solutions to me at the firm that, you know, I wouldn't be able to find on my own or it would take more effort. Um, They're bringing educational content and resources, which is consistently mentioned as the number two driver of satisfaction or driver um, of importance with those asset managers. They're bringing specialist resources, especially on the PM side. So it's about product specialists and PM resources to bear as well. And so I think that's a big piece of it is it's one person that can frankly just curate the experience of all these things with me. That's critical. The other piece that's oftentimes, um, I'm going to say an afterthought, um, an afterthought in some of the conversations that we have at the very least is bringing to bear territory knowledge, right? It's about what else is happening at my peers down the street? What's happening at my competitors? What's happening across the industry, right? It's bringing to bear all of that intelligence that wholesalers are in such a unique place to be able to deliver because they're having meetings with so many other people that are truly 
you know, the peers and competitors of those financial professionals, we've seen a shrinking core set of finan- or of wholesalers that financial professionals are working with. So at this point, you know, the average advisor is telling us they're working with three to four external wholesalers in their core set at this point. Now that's causing that shrinkage in the number of meetings. It's getting harder and harder to get those meetings because that core set is shrinking to some degree. But what's interesting is the value they're getting from that shrinking set has actually gone up and the expectations have gone up in that same time period. They're expecting a lot more. They're developing deeper partnerships. They're just doing it with a more limited subset of people. And that fits in with how they're managing their practice. One of the core trends that underlies everything we've talked about today is advisors and wealth managers are looking to increase the efficiency of their practices, right? How do I take on more clients? And so I think that's kind of the the other piece of that that we had talked about as well. So like you said, resounding yes to are people still getting value out of, you know, out of their asset management partners and external wholesalers. Um, It's just getting harder out there as an external wholesaler to be able to deliver that value and to be able to get your foot in the door. Which is why all these other things are, you know, are, are arguably more important than they've ever been in the past. Feel that for sure. Yeah, I mean, you're yeah. speaking our language there. I'm particularly proud of us because we have seen the trends about meetings in the industry going down, and you know, really, if I can pat ourselves on the back, um, ours haven't. Our activity hasn't dipped, and it's because of the investments we've made and being really valuable and useful uh, to financial professionals. So maybe we'll do one final question. If you had one recommendation for the two groups of people that we generally talk about, which is asset managers, us, and financial professionals, what one recommendation would you give to each of those? I mean, I would go back to something we talked about earlier, which is a recommendation for both, which is think really critically about your brand, right? Sit down and try and answer the question of, um, you know, why should a financial advisor, why should an end investor do business with me and with us specifically? And then think really critically if everybody else in your organization would agree with you or say the same thing. Right. And I think, you know, that that's arguably the most important thing purely because a lot of the other things that we've talked about cascade off the back of that. Right. If I can answer those things, that all of a sudden makes product development decisions easier because I can lean into those things. It makes conversations about target market and product wrapper easier because all of a sudden I know what my target market is based on who my value proposition is likely to resonate with. That could carry through in your distribution structure, right? How do I create a distribution structure? How do I create a segmentation strategy that ultimately focuses around my value proposition, how that's unique and who it's going to resonate with, right? That's the best way to approach it because otherwise you end up with, and this is my specialty, so it's something that I happen to use as an example a lot. You end up with a a really homogeneous segmentation strategy across the industry where everybody's calling on the advisors with the most assets, right? If everybody's calling on the advisors with the most assets, A, your message starts to get watered down because frankly, you've got 50 other people beating down that same door. But B, your message probably isn't likely to resonate with those people as well as it might resonate with somebody down the hallway from them that might have fewer assets. But frankly, they think about the world, they think about the market in a similar way to the way that you do. And so it's going to drive better conversations, better partnership, and ultimately better outcomes for everybody involved. 
all of that comes off the back of that value proposition piece. That's uh, that's an amazing answer. Thank you to our guest, Tim Kressel from Broadridge. We really, really appreciate you spending some time with us. No, thank you both very much. I really appreciate the time. Awesome. Uh, we will be right back with our Costanza Corner. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to our Costanza Corner, where we like to leave on a high note. Kurt, let us leave on a high note. You have Netflix, right? I do. Enjoy it very um, much. It's this this new thing. You may have heard of it. I've well, heard of it. There's a guy I have followed for for years, uh, Ramit Sethi. He has a new show on Netflix based off his book and blog, and he has a podcast. Uh, the book started with the title, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. And rather than on face value, it seems like this message of I don't know, like let's talk about penny stocks or something and get rich quick. It's it's the opposite. It's more of aligning whatever money you have, like yes, building wealth, but aligning money to your purpose or to your values, which is just always, you know, it's that's very central to the idea of of psychology and money, which is always really interesting to me. And so um he's got this show on Netflix that really sparked a lot of those conversations between me and my wife. It's like, hey, well, how how are we aligning our spending um, and and what we're teaching our kids with, with money? And how are we aligning all those things? Long story short, my wife and I went on a quick weekend getaway a few months ago and we're like, you know what? I think it's time to start really exposing the kids to the world. We came back and we booked a trip to Alaska. So we're taking the nice. whole family and some in-laws to Alaska because travel, seeing the world, like it's, it's not a a thing that my, my wife and I did much of growing up and that's something that we want to give our kids. And so, um, so we're booked. So we're taking them all the way up there in September to go watch whales and go run around Denali and all that kind of fun stuff. That's amazing. I'm jealous. I'm going to go to Alaska soon this year. Part of it is we had a couple of these due diligence events that we did and one in San Francisco in particular, we had, um, we had a whole bunch of people down from Alaska and I just found the people up there. Now, this is a small sample set, so I'm not, I've am not i not spoken to half of Alaska. Or maybe I have. I don't know how many people are up there, actually. But they were the nicest, most wonderful people ever. Um, and I can't wait to get up there and see it. I've heard amazing things about it. You know, the comments about Last Frontier and, yeah. you know, going to see bears and moose walking around, which is like kind of my kind of, my kind of vibe. So uh, I'm really excited for you. And I, and I agree with the premise. It's like, we all want to save. We all want to invest. We all want to be smart about our money. But you have to think about, we all work hard. We've all gotten to a point in my career where you deserve to kind of invest in the things and spend on things that you, that you care about and that matter. Like, you know, I, I just there's a point with the the savings, you know, you've read the articles that are the flip side, just like, don't ever do X, like don't ever eat out or something. And it's like, well, don't spend you know, $3 on a latte. There, there's like the anti-coffee like, police out there on social media. I just like calm down. Right. I mean, like relax, like you got to enjoy your life a little bit too. And we're not, you know, doing it in any kind of degenerative way. So I'm way with you outside on this. the spreadsheet for sure. Yeah. We all work hard. So there's a balance and I love that message. And, uh, so yeah, that's going to be amazing. When did you say you were doing that? September. September. All right. Well, you have to come back and report back to us. Bring us a Costanza Corner directly from Alaska. That is I your will. requirement. 
from the last frontier. Th- I'll do it. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. See y'all. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. EFT is an acronym for Exchange Traded Fund. ESG is an acronym for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. CA is an acronym for Client Associate. JPN is an acronym for Joint Production Numbers, the identifier through which revenues flow. IP is an acronym for Intellectual Property, a set of laws that protect creative and innovative products. ALTS is short for Alternative. It refers to investments that provide exposure to non-traditional asset classes. Ultra short means investments in fixed income securities with extremely short time periods in which they become due for payment. Touchstone and Broadridge are unaffiliated. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. This commentary is for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing.